at Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This journo has won Australia's premier journalism prize, the Walkley Award, five times for his investigative reporting. Mark Willisey has reported for the ABC from more than 30 countries and was a former Middle East and North Asia correspondent. He's been named Queensland Journalist of the Year and this year won a Logie Award for his Four Corners story on the Thai Cave Rescue. Mark tells me on this episode of The Journo Project that he still aims to make a new contact every week and goes to extraordinary lengths to protect his sources. Mark, thank you for joining us on Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project. Oh, pleasure, Nance. Lovely to have you. And Mark, you've had an incredible career. It's hard to know where to start. How about we start right at the beginning? Was journalism really the dream for you from a young age? No, I actually did um, an an engineering degree. Really? Yeah, for about four, three and a half years. And um, let's just say I wasn't a natural engineer. (laughs) And I realised that that wasn't my passion or my calling. And my late mother said, look, you've always had the gift of the gab and you've been interested in politics and stuff like that. Why don't you give journalism a go? And I went back and did the journalism degree and I loved it. And I was lucky enough to be offered a job to go up to Gladstone wonderful beautiful Gladstone for the ABC. That was your first gig and with the ABC? Yeah it was and and in a way it was the greatest gig I've ever had because I was young, I was was green and um, I went to a newsroom where I was the only person in it. I reported to the Rockhampton newsroom so I was sitting in an office on my own in a town I didn't know the days before Twitter and you know mass press releases, I had a fax machine that had spit out one thing a week. So I had to get out and I had to go and meet people. I had to know who the Chamber of Commerce president was, the mayor and city figures. And, and it taught me the, the value of getting out and eyeballing people and getting to know your community. And it doesn't matter whether you're the Middle East correspondent, the Washington correspondent or the Gladstone correspondent, you've got to know your patch. Sounds uh, pretty daunting, I think, to many young people to, to go somewhere that you didn't know. But it sounds like that practice almost continues to inform the way you work now. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, look, um, my father has a saying that you bite off more than you can chew (laughs) and chew like shit. (laughs) And that's been my motto with my journalism. I've always tried to go places and do jobs that are going to challenge me. And sometimes I've been, you know, not getting a lot of sleep because I wonder whether I can do it. But if you're motivated, if you love journalism... You'll get there. It, you're going to make a lot of mistakes, but I've learned more from my mistakes than I have from my triumphs, put it that way. And so from Gladstone, where to from there? I went to Townsville. Um, that was I went up for the Black Hawk helicopter disaster in 97. Oh, that must have been hard. Well, that was my first, yeah, it was my first real sort of tragedy story, um, mm. the deaths of all those SAS guys and the chopper pilots and... And anyway, that was great. And then I moved on to Radio Current Affairs. And that, at that time, AM, PM, The World Today was my dream. I love those programs, still do to this day. So I went to Adelaide for that. And uh, people said, you're making a mistake going to Adelaide. It's the world's biggest above-ground cemetery. <laughs> I thought that was a bit rough. And I enjoyed my time there. And from there on to Melbourne with Radio CAF. And then 
to the bear pit in Canberra to Parliament House. So you have had experience in so many different places. Is there something... What, what's the similarities here about how you find a story, Mark? You always seem to unearth stories that are not on the agenda. So what, what is it that you take with you to all these places to do that? Well, one of the, the common denominators that other people notice about the way I do journalism is I'm very rarely at my desk. <laughs> um, and that's for a good reason. I was taught that you've got to go out and pound the shoe leather, you've got to go and eyeball people, you've got to make contacts. Contacts are the, are the sort of the lubricant in the journalistic engine. And for me, going out and talking to people. I'm naturally quite social as well. Um, I like a beer, I like a coffee, <laughs> depending on what time of the day it is, of course. And here we are now, hence why we are having our interview at a coffee shop at the ABC. Exactly. And, and, and Very so, so I think I, uh, I think that's the common denominator is I, I like to get out and meet people. And I think if people look in the whites of your eyes and they get to know you face to face, they're more likely to trust you. And if they trust you, they'll give you things and they'll tell you things and they might give you interesting documents. And, and so that's always been the case. And I took that with me, you know, when I went overseas as well, um, to go out and meet people. Um, you know, uh, it's just the bread and butter of what we do. And is that uh, even more important these days with social media? How does that technique work with the social media? Yeah, look, social media is important, but it's also a bit of an echo chamber and it's, you know, there's all sorts of wild conspiracy theories that even some sane people occasionally retweet or endorse <laughs> or like. So, no, it's even more important in what we do to get out and meet people and to know people and to trust your sources and also for your sources to trust you. That's, that's the most important thing. So, in a way, it might be a good initial place to meet people, but you should follow up on that for people who are trying to learn from your practice? Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think um, I have a little rule with my journalism. I've been doing it for 25 years. I'm now in this investigative role that I like to make one solid new contact a week. Still? Yep, every week I like to, to do that. And not only that, the other rule I have that's important is with your existing contacts, don't let them wither on the vine. You mightn't do a police story for ages, but you keep in touch with those police officers or those you know senior commissioned officers. You make those phone calls just to say, how are you going? What's going on? We haven't spoken for a while. Why don't we catch up for coffee? Um, you know, and just to keep that going because you want to prove to your sources that you don't just ring them when you need something. It's a two-way relationship. So you need to make time for that in your working week on top of your deadlines, on top of the stories you're doing? That's right. Like I said, this week I've, um, I've done a story about a kid who was stripped naked in the Brisbane City Watch House and left naked for four days. Now, that took... The last week I've been going solid on that story. I haven't had time to, to really talk about other things or see other people. But so today I'm now doing my catch up. That story went to air last night. So today I'm catching up with a variety of people, yourself included, um, and you know, just saying to them, look, how you're going, what's going on, anything on the go. You know, it's always important to see what uh, what they're up to. So those times that we were in the newsroom, Mark, because I of course did sit next to you or pretty close to you, and I'd hear you chatting on the phone and think wow he's having a great old time you were actually investing in your contacts i was but i i tell you what nance i have a great time doing it i really do um, well, and i suppose you've got to enjoy this job it's long hours it is it is it's um my wife um she tears her hair out because you know i'll come home you know i got home at about 6 30 last night and the phone rang and it was someone i needed to talk to and you know then dinner was served and Another phone call came in, and you know, it's just part of the lot of a journalist. I think you, you, 
I hate missing phone calls. I hate missing messages. I'm sort of really weird about it. I really want to know what's going on. I'm a, I'm a bit of a child like that. <laughs> Can we talk a bit about your foreign work as well? Had you always loved travel or was this something that you kind of that landed was a happy accident? How did those secondments happen? Well, look, I, I grew up in a pretty small, fly-blown, you know, tumbleweed <laughs> town called John Darien, which is about, I don't know, 40 minutes west of Toowoomba, 30 minutes west of Toowoomba, not much there. Um, I always remember thinking, oh, I'd love to get the hell out of here one day. And, and journalism's <laughs> your passport, isn't it? And, you know, and, and I love the fact that, you know, when I joined the ABC, there's all these bureaus around the country, and every time they offered me a job, I just took it because I wanted to do something different. Luckily, I had a, a partner who became my wife who worked in banking and finance so she could move as well but when I was in Canberra at the parliamentary press gallery you know you see a lot of people who find that as a career for them I just hated it I found being a political journalist incremental boring I found the politicians I felt like having a shower every 10 minutes because I'm talking to them I didn't like most of them and I just thought there's got to be more to journalism and the world. And so I started applying for uh, jobs with the ABC overseas. I thought, this is great. And we, I went for the Moscow job, I went for Washington, I went for London, I went for Beijing. I, I think I went for a couple others, didn't get them. And then finally, the Jerusalem job came up. Um, that was at a time when there were suicide bombings in cafes mm -hmm. and buses and the Israelis were dropping bombs in Gaza and there was talk of a war in Iraq. And I thought, you know what? Bombs, bullets, you know, dead bodies, that, that'll be better than Canberra. So I, I went for it and I was lucky enough to get it, yeah. And your partner, your wife went with you? Yeah, she, oh, so, look, yeah. Having, you know, having a partner mm. who's, who's as adventurous as you are is a great thing. And, and look, the thing about journalism, especially um, for female partners, is it can hard, be hard because often they have to give up their work. And it's good to see so many female journalists taking the lead and dragging their male partner or whatever partner along with them, you know. Um, it's good to see women taking the lead on that now. Oh, good. We'll be interviewing Zoe Daniel as part of this series. Well, so. Zoe's a great um, example of, you know, mm, yeah. a, a fantastic journalist who will go anywhere and can do any job. So, what do you remember of your time in the Middle East? What were some of the highlights and maybe the lowlights for you there? I remember being 30 years old and the second day I was there, there was a bomb and going to the bombing with Louis Eriglou, one of the ABC's most experienced cameramen, and just seeing this carnage and thinking, oh, well, um, OK, we'll film from behind the line. But then the Israelis saying, come in and film right in here because they wanted to show the world what they called the terrorism of the Palestinians. And just thinking, this is insane. I'd come from interviewing Joe Hockey and, you know, Simon Crean and all these other <laughs> boring politicians to standing in the middle. Well, standing right where a suicide bomber had hit a button and um, I ended up doing about 23 suicide bombings over there and you know that was that was pretty you know confronting as you'd imagine mm. and the children dying uh, in front of you and and then I got packed up and went off to the Iraq war and um, looking back I was a young man you know from country Queensland and it was quite insane but it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. I was at the front line of history, literally writing that rough first draft of history that journalists are supposed to do. Um, look, and it, it does take a bit of a personal cost, but 
looking back, I think how lucky I was because I saw not only the worst of humanity, but I saw some of the best of humanity over there as well. Is so, that what you think of these these particularly tough war um, frontiers, front, I suppose? Yeah, look, you do see some horrific things committed by some horrific people. But there are some of the responses you see, you know, I saw in Iraq, um, you know, Shiites helping Sunnis and... You know, that was before the, it descended into an insurgency, but um, you know, I saw people helping each other and caring for each other in a, a really horrible time. And the other thing, too, is I made friendships amongst journalists that will last a long a lifetime. You know, my best mates, Louis Eriglou, who I mentioned before, the cameraman for the ABC, you know, to this day, we, we go off and do Four Corners stories together and we talk about the good times and, you know, occasionally talk about the bad times, but um, you really are a privileged person um, as a foreign correspondent because I lived in Jerusalem, I could work in Jerusalem on the Israeli side of the war, um, Palestinians often couldn't get to where I could go and then I could, in the afternoon I could go to Gaza where the Israelis couldn't go. So I could see things and go places that people who lived and were born there couldn't do. So journalism comes with incredible privilege in that sense. Is That's right and, and look um, you've got a, an obligation to humanise um, situations like war, war zones. You know, you could easily back then just report that conflict like a soccer game. Uh, you know, four Palestinians killed overnight in Nablus in Israeli raid, 12 Israelis killed in Tel Aviv at a restaurant bombing. The thing I had to teach myself and, and a lot of people encouraged me to do as a young journalist, a young foreign correspondent, was to humanise conflict and to go and talk to people. And I remember doing a story about the parents of an 11-year-old Israeli boy who, who was killed in a bus bombing and then doing a story about an 11-year-old Gaza a girl, I, I remember it was, who was shot by an Israeli sniper and trying to talk about how these parents, you know, how they reacted. And they reacted the same, with grief, horror and the sense of utter and total loss. So war, war is bad on everyone, but particularly children. And I think that's the same for so many stories that we tell, isn't it, Mark? It doesn't matter how many people are affected, it comes back to telling the story of one person and that gives people something to relate to. That's right, and it's a bit like the story I mentioned before that I did yesterday about the boy in the Brisbane Watch House who was stripped naked and left like that for four days, you know. Um, how do you tell a story about kids in a watch house? Well, you tell it by the experiences of individual children and what they go through. So I think uh, as young journalists, we've got to teach um, you know, the people coming behind us that you really need to humanise things and not get caught up too much in the big picture. And that's why I think I found Canberra and the Parliament House just utter crap. Well, and I suppose you're fed a lot more stories there. Would that be a fair assessment? Oh, look, look that's the thing I didn't mm. like too, Nance, was the fact that you'd be sitting there on a, on, a, on a Friday afternoon and someone from the Labor side or the Liberal side would come in with what they call a drop. And it's just basically a ready-made story to embarrass the other side. And you've got to ask yourself, and you see a lot of it in news-limited papers to this day, uh, are you actually a journalist or are you part of a political process? Are you a player because you're being used? And I didn't want to be used. Um, I wanted to go off and I wanted to stand in the mud, the blood, blood and the beer and, and make up my own mind. <laughs> so from the Middle East, was there not to Tokyo from there? I came back for a couple of years because mm -hmm. after the Middle East, um, I had to have a little bit of a decompress. I bet you did. Uh, so I went off and did Landline for a year, the ABC's Rural Affairs Program, and I went, you know, spent three weeks in the Kimberley, did back a bit of fishing. Your, your rural roots. I did, and I went, you know, I went to Lake Eyre, and 
I went all over the country and I really had a great time and did a lot of long-form TV. You almost like the correspondent for Australia's Outback. It was. It was great. And I met a lot of people. I ate some camel sausages and uh, <laughs> I accidentally hooked a crocodile in the Ord River fishing one day. Um, <laughs> How did that go? Oh, not real well. We had to, had to disentangle the poor bloody thing. Um, but then we, um, then we went... Um, we decided we'd go overseas again, and we'd had a couple of kids in Jerusalem, so little, two little girls, and we decided what's a good posting for a family, and that was Tokyo. Nothing ever happens over there, so I'd have to go and do a bit of manufacturing of stories and dig a bit deeper, and I thought, great family posting. And how did that turn out for you, Mark? Was your prediction right there? <laughs> it, for two and a half years, I was on the money, and then on March the 11th, 2011, we had the biggest earthquake they think in about 3,000 years off the uh, northeast coast of Japan and of course we all remember what that caused it was a giant tsunami that no one could ever have predicted really um, and that of course had a knock-on effect again and mm. created nuclear meltdowns and so I um, spent the last two and a half years of that posting sort of making sense of all that so initially reporting on you know, dozens of towns have been wiped off the map. They look like they've had nuclear explosions go through them. And, um, you know, again, we're dealing with uh, dead and injured people. Mm. And then the nuclear stuff. And, and, you know, other than the Chernobyl disaster that had happened 25 years earlier, we, we didn't really have any experience of reporting in radioactive areas like that. So I'm still alive. Hopefully I'll have a long and fruitful life. But it was uh, <laughs> was a bit of a wild ride. Well, I think of you even going back there a few years later, wasn't it, for Four Corners and, and revisiting those radioactive areas. How do you keep yourself safe in these times, Mark? Oh, look, it is, it is a bit difficult. Yeah. We carried a Geiger counter that when we went into the wrong places would screech, screech at us. Mm. Um, yeah, it was a bit interesting. and But look, it's the old saying, isn't it? Um, journalists run towards things that people are running away from. That's what we do. And, and um, you know, it's a privilege to have seen something that terrible. You know, I don't want that to happen. I don't want people to die. I don't want natural disasters. But if they're going to happen, I, I want to be there to report on it. And, um, you know, I, the thing about that story, too, that I found fascinating was that the international media covered it better than the Japanese media. The Japanese media is a very compliant press. Yeah. They didn't want to talk about nuclear meltdowns. They mm. wanted to keep things calm. And, you know, I ended up writing a book about the Fukushima disasters because I just thought it was ripe for investigation. Um, what did did they know that that was a big fault line of Japan? Yes, they did. Did they simulate tsunamis? Yes, they did. Was the nuclear plant warned? Yes, they were. Um, so it was a bigger story than a natural disaster. It was a it was a story about human failings and the cost of that. And I remember, I think if I could say a part of your style to me, Mark, is I remember you going back. But even for that follow up, it wasn't about you so much. It was about. I remember the, a couple of mothers and fathers and you very much told the story through through their eyes and still looking for relatives or for the towns that, that just didn't exist anymore. Yeah, that was a, a thing, you know, it's, it gets back to what we talked about contacts and sources before. You know, I'd met these people when they were trying to find their kids, you know, a, da a few days after the tsunami and um, one guy in particular, his name was Norio Kimura and Norio lost his wife, his father and his daughter one of his two daughters and 
you know, he'd fa- I left Japan, and anyway, the bodies of his uh, wife, she was found floating off the coast months and months later, and DNA tests confirmed it was her. And the father was found not long after the tsunami. But I went back five years later to do that follow-up you were talking about, and he still hadn't found his daughter, you know. And in Japanese culture, it's very important to have some remains to cremate and to, to have some finality in death. And, you know, I went back and because I knew him and because I'd spent a lot of time with him, he sort of let us film again and as he kept searching and searching and searching, it's heartbreaking. I'm the father of three daughters and the thought of losing one is just beyond my comprehension. So that's, again, what journalism can give you. It can give you a sense of perspective and it gives you a sense of context and it gives you a sense of other people's grief and loss. And I wonder if that's also an antidote to... Uh, there's a lot of focus on the journalist being the live crossed and everything now. Have you seen that progression? And what do you think mm. of that, the focus on the journalist? Yeah, look, and, and the ABCs can be guilty of that as well. I think that's a very good point that you raise. I see a lot of younger journalists who want to get into the game uh, very keen to get, on, get their heads on News 24 and do a live cross. To me, that is a form of journalism, but it's not the most um, pure form. I think what we do and what we should be doing rather in journalism is is putting ourselves in the back seat and telling the story of others and telling the stories of scandals or corruption or natural disasters whatever it may be yes you might have to infuse yourself in the story to, to say we are here this is what we see but I'm seeing too much of the commando correspondent um, the you know look at me journalist um, and I think it takes away from your craft if that's what you want to do. What is the importance of investigative journalism, as you are doing now? Do you think for Australian democracy there is quite a lot of debate about this at the moment? Oh, look, I think um, the importance of investigative journalism is crucial and it is becoming more and more important in the world of, you know, social media and the the echo chamber that that is and the, the misinformation... Let's, let's quote Donald here, the fake news that you often get. But also, um, it's more important to sort of sort through the spin of politics. And I think politics at the moment is toxic in this country. I think um, the, the politicians are trying to control information. They're trying to be able to silence whistleblowers. They're trying to be able to trap journalists. I think, I think this is an age where investigative journalism is crucial for the future of our democracy and and that's not just Australia that's Europe that's North America it's everywhere and you know look at this story I talked about we broke yesterday now if we hadn't broken the story about this kid in a watch house with no clothes on for four days in a cell with other kids where would we got it would we heard about it on Twitter would a government have told us I don't think so, and so it's important that we invest money in investigative journalism. And the problem with that is journalism money dries up. Investigative journalism is the most expensive form of it. And look, the ABC is putting some money into it, which I like, but um, I think we need to see more of it. How does that play into the recent raids of the AFP on ABC and and News Limited? Well, you know, to me, that was just utterly ridiculous, those raids. You know, if you take the ABC raid, you know, they've got a guy putting his hand up saying, I leaked it. They've already charged him. He's facing court. Um, You've got a situation where this investigation kicked off two years ago. So why, all of a sudden, just after an election, is that happening? And look... um, I think it was important that the ABC um, had cameras on those AFP officers and there were live tweeting going on. It was very transparent what they were up to and um, we knew how many documents they were looking for, we knew what type of documents. Since that has happened now, of course, the Minister's saying, oh, well, we're not going to prosecute the journalists, we don't think. So 
I think we've got to we've got to watch the surveillance state, the police state that's developing in this country, and I worry that politicians are getting a little bit too far ahead of ourselves. And in Australia, we've you know even the New York Times recently said, "Are we the most secretive democracy?" Yeah, I think we are. I heard uh, Damien Cave in that interview with Richard Father. It was very interesting, wasn't it, to hear that overseas perspective and that Australia can perhaps learn from that. Yeah, I think so. Look, I think we're one of the few democracies that don't have freedom of the press enshrined in some form of constitutional right or, or Bill of Rights, um, and that to me is a worry um, because politicians, even the most shrill authoritarian versions of them I think admit the press play an important role like, and again how would how would they even get their message out without a free press so um, I suppose they'd just go on Twitter and talk to their stupid followers wouldn't they but um, look I, I think it's time for this debate to happen in Australia that maybe we need to enshrine freedom and independence of the press officially in our constitution or in a bill of rights of some form. And it makes me think of a story that you did uh, well the last couple of years I think but certainly last year again was because this makes me think of the Joe era and you have revisited that with the Moonlight State. Is that part of the role of journalists too to to remind people of history? It's something we grew up with in our era but I wonder how many students are really aware of it wasn't that long ago that the media was really monitored and um, that, that these some of these civil rights that we have now taken for granted. Really. That's right and Chris Masters when he exposed police corruption on the Moonlight State Four Corners program in 1987 I think showed that was the greatest piece of journalism committed in this state um, but and it led to major change in this state political uh, justice law and order it, it really changed this state it was really important to me to do 30 years on and what was worrying, we were filming in the valley one night. We spent two weeks filming in the valley, mainly at night. And, of course, some nightclub guys were pissed off that we were filming across the road. And, you know, they had no right to worry. We were in a public place. But, anyway, the police were called. So these two young constables come up to us and they go, what, what are you doing? Why are you filming? And I, said, I said, mate, we're doing 30 years on from the moonlight state. And this cop said, what's the moonlight state? Now, this is a police officer, for Christ's sake. And I just I explained it's it to him. pretty telling. I explained it to him and I said, you're coming to hassle a film crew who's doing nothing wrong in a public place and you don't even know what the moonlight state is. I said, we've really got a problem here. Um, so, <laughs> of course, famously, that's what happened as well in the, in the moonlight state. Originally, it was the camera crew was giving a bit of a dust-up. Yeah, they were, Ooh. you know. So... No, look, I think we can never take our freedoms for granted and I think the media needs to keep reminding people what those freedoms are and why we need to keep fighting for them. And I think, you know, in the age of Trump, um, we've got to be very bloody careful just um, what we allow politicians to erode bit by bit by bit. That's the sort of rise of fascism. And I know it sounds all very dramatic, but I'd encourage people to read about Germany in 1933 and how that all just got chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. And then six years later, the world was at war. So really, uh, we've got to be aware of history as journalists and, and be well read. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, I, mm. I, I'm a, a guy who believes in just constant reading and, you know, mainly I mix it up. I do read a bit of fiction too to help my writing ability, maybe to help me write a bit more suspenseful if I'm doing something about a police <laughs> investigation. But no, no, know your history, read a lot, um, try not to be tunnel visioned and um, yeah. I suppose, and just finally, being a podcast, we should ask you about all the changes in technology you've seen, Mark. Do you embrace those or do they flip you out? What, do you, what advice do you have regarding technology in this game of journalism? Oh, technology is our friend and our enemy in journalism. It's <laughs> our friend in that it can make things easier, faster, more immediate. Um, it's our enemy in that it means governments can follow us and snoop on us and 
you know, um, can keep an eye on exactly where we've been and who we've spoken to. But generally, we're yeah. talking about the sort of stuff we use in our day to day. I started off with reel to reel tape for radio, so that I'm from the Jurassic period of journalism. So you used a razor blade to cut yeah, it together, I, didn't you? I did, yeah, yeah. it was um, amazing. But now, <laughs> I think what we have is one of the great blessings. If I was coming into journalism right now, I'd be pretty thrilled. Like, the bit of kit you're holding in front of me is <laughs> tiny compared to what I used to look around. zoom. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. And you could, you could probably get on a plane tonight, bugger off to a war zone with just the yeah. handbags uh, worth of gear, you know. Whereas, you know, I remember going to Iraq for the war and we had 22 giant pelican cases of shit. Um, you know, three sat phones in case two broke, you know, and they were the size of a, you know, a large computer. So, no, enjoy it. Good, it's a good thing. <laughs> but as you say, or well, you did touch on it, the flip side is perhaps that extra level of surveillance that we are going through now. I've heard it said that it might be time to go back to shorthand and notebooks. Do you find that with your investigation? I do and we're, we're very much um, conscious of fingerprints when it comes to dealing with sources. We have to give, if we want to give sources 100% confidentiality we have to also teach our sources what to do with their technology. So mm -hmm. for example, you know, the use of Signal or WhatsApp, but we're even sort of investigating better technology or more safe technology than that. But for example, I, you know, I, when I go to meetings with sources who I know are going to give me something, I my phone behind and that way if there was ever an investigation my phone and the source's phone aren't going to be in the same spot and, and I, is that because they track yeah. people can track where yeah. your phone they is they can triangulate your location very easily in fact you know i was talking to a police officer the other week and he was telling me how they were tracing this suspect um, from the gold coast to gundawindi just using the triangulation of his phone and they set up a roadblock for him in gundy and got him so you know, they would have got a warrant for that. It's not hard to get a warrant these days. So you're using notes back yep. to the old shorthand book? Yeah, yep. and never, and you know, with my job, I don't write their names in the notebooks, so I don't write their phone numbers in the notebooks. Truly. I'm dealing with a defamation case at the moment uh, with the Gold Coast Mayor, um, and my notebooks have been subpoenaed. And I, t I spoke to a lot of people off the record, and there's not a name in there that I know of that will be gleaned from that discovery. And that's important for your sources. You, again, if your sources can only trust you if you do the right thing by them. So you're so conscious of that in every aspect of your work, I, protecting your sources. I am, but it's taken me years to understand what the surveillance state can get you on, and it's taken me years to also realise that you've got to educate your sources about what technology they use, what they say, and yeah, again, I think getting back to a notebook, a pen, and a face-to-face -face meeting, um, that's probably the best way of doing it. Mark, thank you so much for giving us your perspective on Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project. Could we finish perhaps with just a, a rallying call I suppose I think that's part of what this uh, project is about but is it time really for journalists to to be a bit prouder of the role we have in society that that fourth estate to to tell people what is achieved through a robust independent journalistic regime I think um, what we all need to remember journalists old and new alike is it we're always important in society. We are a pillar of democracy, but I think we are going to be more and more important as the years roll on, given what we're seeing going on in the world at the moment. That was renowned ABC investigative journalist and author of Fukushima, Mark Willisey, speaking to me from a cafe outside the ABC studios at Southbank in Brisbane.
Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.